Good morning. As you probably know, we went down last weekend for my monthly checkups. The first bit of good news we got is that now we'll be going down every two months instead of every month. So that's progress. None of the blood tests they did came back with any concerns. There's, there's one virus that's been nagging at me that um, they said is now in the negative, which is a very good sign. And the only thing we don't know yet is they, they, they surprised us by needing me to take a liver CT. Um, and they did that. We thought we were going to have to make another trip a month later. You know how these things kind of go. Well, they got it ready for us the next day. They found a way for us to get it done Tuesday morning. And so we were able to get back here relatively on time and just have to wait for the results of that. We, we got a preliminary that everything looks fine, but they have the radiologist look over them pretty good. So we haven't had that report yet. But one thing, one story I want to tell, these prayer shawls, Lori decided that um, she was going to give one to her sister Judy. Her sister Judy has a number of ailments and they, they're quite debilitating. It's amazing that she can get up and walk around and drive and everything else. But she, she brought one of these down for Judy and the first thing is that it was a perfect color for her. She, she, she loved the color and everything else. but. She was so impressed by the, the, the prayer that goes into it and, and this card that's on it that she brought her new prayer shawl to a meeting at the hospital she works at. She works at the PA hospital. And she read the card to everybody at the meeting and, and everything else. So she was really blessed by that. I just wanted you to know that. These, these shawls are really... A powerful ministry. We got to keep doing that. And I can't knit, so <laughs> you guys got to keep making them. Alrighty, let me read to you this morning from Genesis. I'm reading to you the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Oh, it's Genesis 39. I should say that, by the way. Genesis 39, starting at the beginning. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put... Oh, I skipped a page. I should lick these before I... Oh, man. I'll skip you eight pages. There. Put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, 
he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, he, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Father God, teach us from your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Just going to need a sip of water before I continue. A group builds up its important words around its common thread things that are common to it. Those who love computers and, and what they do throw around words like gigabyte and, and RAM and CPU. Those who love soccer talk about red cards and, and corner kicks and FIFA. Those who sew, well, they have some fancy words, but you'll have to ask someone who sews what they are because I have no clue. I know there's pearl, knit, and that's knitting though, it's not sewing. I know they have thread and other things like that, but I'm sure there's some fancy words they use too. And, and those who, who like hockey know the phrase well, bombers and five, right? We, we, we know those kind of terms. I thought it was going to be the Bruins and five for the cup this year. Look what happened, I didn't know much. On a larger scale, a society forms its language around words that are important to it. Now you may be asking why I mentioned this in a sermon about self-control. I probably should have told you that at the beginning, that the message was going to be about self-control. Well, now you know. When I looked into my dictionary to see if self-control means what I think it means, 
because I, I check these things out from time to time. I found 247 different words that start with self. Now some of these things are mechanical or organic. Self-loading rifles or self-rising flower. But the majority of these terms refer to something about one's self. If you're punishing yourself too often, you're guilty of self-flagation. And if you go too far in self-flagation, you can commit self-annihilation. If you draw attention away from yourself, you're self-effacing. And if you think you're always right, you're self-opinionated. If you're constantly making excuses, you're self-justifying. And if you see yourself in someone or something else, you have engaged in self-identification. And on it goes. I think it's fair to say that we are a society thoroughly wrapped up in our selves. Or should I say, self-centered. But before I get too far on that, I will say that we do need to be somewhat self-aware if we're to survive. If we don't pay attention to our body's needs for food and water, we'll eventually die of hunger or thirst. If we don't pay attention to our need for shelter, especially up here in the north, we'll die of exposure to the elements. If we don't pay attention to our need for clothing, well, we'll get arrested. Self-awareness is part of who we are, and it be but when it begins to fail, we suffer greatly. However, most of us don't have a problem with self-awareness. We excel at it. We're so good at it, in fact, that we quickly move past it and on to self-centeredness. And that's when things start to go wrong. Now, why is this wrong? Well, it's wrong because when we begin to place ourself in the center of our lives, everything else takes second place. Now, that doesn't seem too bad at first. After all, who's going to take care of ourself except ourself? But with ourselves in the absolute center, who then are we accountable to? What rules do we follow? Who is the most important influence in our lives? If we answer all of these questions with ourselves, well then we walk the same road as some of the most evil people who ever walked the earth. Because the people who cause the most harm in this world are the people who've decided they don't have to answer to anybody but themselves. Their own desires, their own appetites, their own prejudices, their own rules. Now the contrast to self-centeredness is self-control. Someone with self-control recognizes there's a right and a wrong, that there's a standard he or she must live up to, and that we must exercise control over our desires and appetites if we're to abide by them. Our passage today is about a man who demonstrates incredible self-control. 
Joseph was a man who knew the difference between self-awareness and self-centeredness. And he lived his life in such a way that he was not the center of his own universe, and he was able to be self-controlled. He'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. The traders had brought him to Egypt where he was purchased by Potiphar, the captain of the royal guard, Pharaoh's own personal bodyguard. Joseph stays faithful to God throughout this ordeal, and it soon becomes evident, it soon becomes evident, that God is faithful to him. We read that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success. So much success that Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of everything concerning the household. And this entails much more than just being the head servant. Joseph is managing Potiphar's investments. He runs the farming operations. He runs the household. The only thing Potiphar had to do was feed himself. He's still a slave, but he works himself into a very prominent and enviable position. It would be very easy for him to think quite highly of himself. Yet he remains faithful to the God who's blessed him so far. But as we see in our text, his self-control will be put to the test. Potiphar's wife would have had ample opportunity to see Joseph at work. And apparently, she likes what she sees. Here's a strong and handsome man who can manage investments, works hard, and is good with people. Her husband is a military leader who's very likely away from the house quite often. So she's probably a lonely queen in a house full of servants and slaves. Her words in verse 7 don't leave a lot to the imagination. Come to bed with me. And it would have been very easy for Joseph to accept this invitation. He could justify it by saying he's just following orders. After all, he is a slave. He could certainly find the time and place to go through with it. He's in charge of the house. And Mrs. Potiphar is probably a very attractive young woman. She's the wife of an important official who could pick and choose. Pardon me. Oh, I'm getting this right. Yeah. She is the wife of Potiphar, who's an important official who could pick and choose a wife at leisure. She would have had all the resources she needs to obtain the finest scents and lotions and all that kind of stuff. And there's no talk of kids running around the house to tattle on anybody. (coughs) However, the soap opera stops there because Joseph says no. And his refusal is based on two factors. One, he says that Potiphar trusts him, and he doesn't want to break that trust. And two, he says that committing this act would be a sin against God, and he simply will not do it. His decision is a strong demonstration of self-control. He could have had the pleasure of sexual relations with this woman, and most likely gotten away with it. But he refuses because he knows that it would be wrong. His decision, even though it's the right one, gets him into more trouble than he can imagine. 
Potiphar's wife doesn't give up. And eventually she catches him alone and actually grabs his clothes. And he runs. Because there's simply nothing else he could really do to get out of this situation. He can't call for help. Who's going to believe him? He can't complain or testify against Potiphar's wife. He's still a slave. His words mean nothing against the words of his owner's wife. And he will not, under any circumstances, give in to her advances. It would be the easy thing to do at this point. After all, he could rationalize it away by saying he really had no other option. But again, he demonstrates self-control and does the best possible thing under the circumstance. He just leaves. Well, there's a struggle, and Mrs. Potiphar is left holding his coat. And she's not a happy woman. Her reaction demonstrates what someone will do when the only person they're accountable to is themselves. She can't let the story get out that Joseph spurned her advances. What would that say about her beauty, her charm? her ability to love. What would happen if Potiphar found out about her conduct? Would she be beaten or sent away? She fears for her own reputation and safety, so she fabricates a story out of thin air that makes Joseph the aggressor. He came after me in my own house. He was taking off his clothes and trying to get mine off. I screamed to protect myself, and he ran, leaving his coat behind. See? His coat's right here. It's pure poppycock. But it's enough to land Joseph in jail. And our passage ends today with him sitting in the king's prison. His reward for his self-control being a dark and dreary cell. So why? If the story really did end there, one may wonder why Joseph bothered holding back. After all, a simple yes would have given him pleasure, security in his place of employment, and kept him out of jail. But we know the story doesn't end there. Even though Joseph ends up in jail, he quickly gains the trust of the jailers, who place him in charge of the other prisoners making sure everybody gets food and water and other essentials. And then just as God blessed him in Potiphar's home, we read that the Lord gives him success in whatever he did. Then through a course of events, Joseph, even though he's nothing but a prisoner, is given a chance to appear before Pharaoh himself. And Joseph's trusting God leads him to help Pharaoh understand two dreams that no one else could understand. Joseph gains the Pharaoh's trust and is placed in charge of the entire nation, second only to Pharaoh himself. And in this position, he's able to take steps which eventually lead to his reunification with his family in Israel. Not too bad for a guy who left home in the chains of the slavers. Joseph's ability to say no at the right time, to exercise self-control, 
may have put him in some short-term trouble, but it leads to long-term blessings beyond his wildest hopes. And I believe that same formula still is at work for us today. To understand self-control, we have to first accept there's something greater than ourselves, beyond our control, that we have to submit to. That something, of course, is God. And His will for our lives is that we follow Him. He's given us the Word of God, the Bible. And with it, we get two E's, explanations and examples that show us how to live life the way God wants us to. The explanations are the principles, the rules, the commandments that teach us how to live God's way. They may seem like there's too many of them to keep track of, and indeed it takes a while to learn them all if we ever do. But they boil down to the Ten Commandments, which then boil down to love God and love your neighbor. And then there's the examples. There are the stories like Joseph and Ruth and Job and Daniel and Esther who strive to live God's way and are rewarded for their faithfulness. Most of them suffered at times for doing the right thing, from holding back from temptation, for exercising self-control. But all of them were eventually blessed beyond what they could have hoped for. Once we recognize that we're not the center of the universe, we have to accept that we're not very good at exercising self-control. Even though we may see how it can help us, our natural inclination is to take what looks best and brightest for us right now. That's why sin never looks like sin when it comes along. No one would commit sin if it didn't give itself such a shiny and attractive appearance. If it didn't look good or taste good or feel good. We as people have become so programmed to follow what seems shiniest for us, what best for us at the time. That it takes a superhuman effort to stop and make sure we're not being led down the right path. But guess what? We have a superhuman who's just waiting to help us. Jesus lived just like we do, and yet he was able to live without sin, exercising self-control like no one before, during, or after him. So what we need to do is come continually to him in prayer. Ask him for his help and guidance as we face our day-to-day -day decisions. And as we pray, we'll learn to trust in someone far greater than ourselves. Someone who wants to give us far more than our desires or appetites can even imagine. And we'll learn to worship someone far greater than ourselves. And I believe, as we trust more and more in God, and in His Word, and in His Son, a sense of self-control will build in us that will see past the silver lining of sin. We'll begin to see how holding back now can build blessings unfathomable for the future. 
will not always feel blessed right away. Just as Joseph suffered short-term pain for his self-control, we too may lose out on something that seems good at the time. But eventually it will be made clear to us that trusting in God is always the right decision and that it carries rewards beyond our understanding. We'll begin to understand that we really don't want to be at the center of our universe. That God belongs in that place. And we live better when He is there. Let's pray. Father God, Joseph had it tough. He had it tough and he made hard decisions that didn't seem to go right for him at the beginning. But he trusted you. He trusted you and in the end, you honored his self-control and you blessed him far beyond what he could have even seen was in the future for him. We don't have Potiphar's wife nagging at us, Lord, coming after us. But there might be something that is trying to pull us down. Sin may be encroaching in our lives somehow, Lord. Help us to see it. Help us to trust in you and to say no. Help us to trust. Help us to use self-control, knowing that you honor those who do. Help us to place our trust in you. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.